I hope you've had a good week. Uh, We've had a rather busy week in our family, but managed to squeeze in two trips to the cinema, which is very unusual for us. So a couple of recommendations. There's some great films out at the moment. Have any of you been to the cinema recently? We saw The Greatest Showman. Anyone seen that? Fantastic, feel-good movie. If you want a bit of a, you know, if this sermon doesn't do it for you, if church doesn't do it for you this morning, then... (laughs) Go and see The Greatest Showman because it's a really good, some great songs, fantastic movie. And we also went to see um, The Darkest Hour. Don't know if any of you have heard of that film about Churchill that's just been released. And again, absolutely fantastic sort of window into his life, his character, part of our uh, our nation's history. Um, So a couple of cinema tips from me. I don't normally go to the cinema, actually. I haven't been to the cinema for about nine months, and then I go twice in a week, a bit like the buses. So this morning, we're going to talk about the book. We're we're continuing our series on healthy habits, and we're going to talk about the book, our book, the Bible. Apparently, 100 million copies of the Bible are sold around the year, every world, um, around the world, every year. Gosh, doesn't all go very well, does it, for this morning? I know I'm tired, but... (laughs) And uh, we've got no idea how many copies of the Bible are downloaded a year, but, you know, many more than that, I should think, or adding to a total that is much bigger than 100 million. The Bible is the best-selling book in history, as many of you will know, with total sales exceeding 5 billion copies. don't know how they statistically add up those numbers, but it seems to be a sort of very well-documented fact. William Tyndall produced the first printed edition of the New Testament in English, And actually, although he did that heroic effort, he was burned at the stake later for his efforts. The first authorised Bible printed in English is the Great Bible of 1539. King Henry VIII of England declared that it should be read aloud during the church services in the Church of England, and it has been ever since. The full Bible has been translated into 670 languages and only partially into 2,642 languages. And given that there are approximately 7,000 languages in the world, that leaves a lot of languages waiting for some form of translation of the Bible. So if you're looking for a career change, you know, that sounds like it could be quite a worthwhile one. The top three highlighted books of all time on Kindle are the Holy Bible, that's the top book, followed by Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, and thirdly, The Hunger Games. The Bible informs the tradition, as we probably know, of the three uh, major monotheistic religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Women are more likely than men, apparently. Older people are more likely than younger people. And African Americans are more likely than any other races in the world to read the Bible. China is not only the largest producer of the world's uh, textiles and manufactured goods, it is actually, interestingly, despite the persecution of the church in China, also the largest producer in the world of Bibles. The Bible has inspired more song lyrics than any book, any other book. The Bible is the most commonly stolen book in the world, apparently, probably because it finds its way into so many hotel rooms, courtesy of the, the Gideons. Apparently, there are 93 women who speak in the Bible, 49 of whom are named. They speak a total of 14,056 words. I cannot believe who would dedicate their life to counting how many words particular women speak in the Bible, but a useful, perhaps interesting statistic if you like these kind of things. Or they speak in about 1.1% of the Bible's text, and there are a total of 188 named women in the Bible. Apparently, the world's smallest Bible can fit on the top of a pen, Sometimes uh, scientists have etched 1.2 million letters of the Old Testament onto a tiny silicon disc, which they call the Nano Bible. 
And apparently, nearly all villains of the Bible have red hair. <laughs> I don't know how anybody knows that. I don't know what it says about you if you have red hair, but that was on a, pack, uh, on a page of interesting facts about the Bible. Not surprisingly, all kinds of people have got all kinds of things to say about the world's most famous book. Uh, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, who had uh, apparently 100,000 people turn up to his funeral in London, so loved and respected was he, he said this about the Bible. I love this quote. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I think that's so good. The atheist Richard Dawkins, who I suspect may have a fewer number of people attending his funeral, said this. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. That's his view of the Bible. George Washington the first uh, president of the United States and deemed to be one of the three most successful uh, presidents of that great country said this, interesting statement for the first president and one of the founding fathers of America. He said this, it's impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and without the Bible. Interesting. And the great Hindu leader who was a significant voice for independence, Mahatma Gandhi, he said this about the Bible. Again, an incredibly thought-provoking thing to say, I think, for a man who wasn't a follower of Jesus and not necessarily a reader of the Bible. He said this, You Christians, you look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all of civilization to pieces, to turn the world upside down, and to bring, and to bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. I don't know about you, but I find that a really challenging thing for somebody who is not a follower of Jesus to say about the book that Jesus has given us, his followers. All kinds of people have all kinds of things to say about the Bible. I'm sure we have too. Here are some things that the Bible actually has to say about itself. Ephesians 6.17 says that the Bible is a weapon. If you need a weapon because you're under attack or because you're wanting to move forward or see some breakthrough in your life, the Bible says that, the, that it is a weapon. Ephesians 6 says that it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105, says that the Bible is a torch. It's like a torch. The psalm says, your word, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. So if you need direction in life or you're looking for the way to go or you're waiting to discover your next step and you can't see it very clearly, the Bible says about itself, it's a torch for our feet. It's a, way, it's a torch to light up our way ahead. Jeremiah 23, 29 says that the Bible is powerful. Isn't my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? You know, we know in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that the Bible says about itself that it's living and active. It's powerful. If you need some power in your life, again, if you're looking to see some things change, the Bible says about itself, it's, it's powerful. It's capable of melting the hardest of hearts. It's capable of shaping, you know, us. It's capable of changing the most chaotic life. The Bible is powerful. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says about the Bible, 
the writer of Hebrews says about the Bible, that it's like a scalpel, a scalpel, you know, which is a bit of an uncomfortable tool, isn't it, to do some uncomfortable work. The text says it penetrates, the Bible, the word of God, penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, the Bible sometimes in the word of God isn't very comfortable. I was in, a, in hospital in the Gloucester Royal um, a couple of weeks before Christmas. I'd taken my youngest son there to sort of finish a series of, of appointments that we'd had over the last year. And because he's only just turned 18, Joshy was being seen in the outpatients department. And... Uh, Across the sort of, you know, in the bed opposite us, there was this young boy. He actually looked um, about six. He was, the nurses told us afterwards, 11. And uh, he needed to have a little bit of blood taken uh, for some diagnostic tests. And each time the nurse turned up to the bedside to uh, take the blood, to put the needle in his arm, the child, not surprisingly, started screaming. And uh, the mother was unable to calm her child and allow the nurse to put the needle in. And this went on for about half an hour. And in the end, they were sent home. And uh, I had huge compassion for the mother because I'm, you know, I'm a mother myself. And seeing your child in distress is agony. But the nurses were quite distressed in having to send the child um, home again because they'd watched this happen a number of times. And it turned out that he's got growth problems. He needed um, medication to help him grow. And he was running out of time because actually he was 11 despite the fact that he looked six. And their inability to go through with the tests was going to make it unable for them to give the medication. And uh, it, was a, it was a brilliant picture to me about, our, about a good parent, actually. And God is a perfect parent, having the strength of love and the strength of um, commitment to us for our future, that actually there are times where he is willing to say things that are painful to us and allow us to experience pain in the short term because for the long term, it's for our good to enable us to grow into all that he has for us and all that he wants us to be. And Hebrews says that the word of God at times is like a scalpel to cut out the things in our lives that are actually hindering us from becoming all that he wants us to be. The Bible also says about itself in James 1 that it's a mirror. The text says this, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do it or do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. So when we read the Bible, it's like we're looking into a mirror. And after looking at himself, if he doesn't do what it says, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. The Bible tells us who we are. The Bible tells us all kinds of things, but the Bible can tell us who we are and where we're at in life with, with God and, uh, you know, all kinds of other things. Proverbs 42, uh, 4 verse 22 tells us that the Bible is life and the Bible is health. You know, that's what the, the writer of Proverbs says. He says, the words of God are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Jesus says the same thing. My words are spirit and they're life. You know, do you know that experience of reading the Bible and it's like the, the word comes alive and it's like something in your spirit comes to life because the word has come alive for you. You know, when, if we're in need of more life, if we're in need of more health in our lives, the Bible is saying it's here in this book. Jesus can speak to us through it. Jesus will speak to us through it and it's a source of life and health. Matthew 4, Jesus says the Bible is food. You know, a very familiar passage. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, if you're spiritually hungry, if you're hungry for more of God, for more, his, for more of his life, for more of his power, for more of, you know, relationship with him, depth of relationship with him, 
The Bible is the food that will feed us. Job says this, chapter 23, I haven't departed from your commands, God, but I've treasured your words more than daily food. I wonder if we can say that about the Bible. Is that what we would say about God's word, that we treasure it more than our food, our daily food? I find that challenging. Romans 10 describes the Bible as being like a spark. The author doesn't actually say it's a spark, but it says that faith comes from hearing the word. So it's like a match that ignites faith within us. So if we want our faith to grow, or we need need faith for particular scenarios, or we're conscious that actually our faith is flagging, well, the Bible says that it is the match for our faith. That we, our faith comes from hearing the word. Our faith grows. Romans 15 says the Bible gives us hope. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us and to encourage us that we might have hope. Do you need more hope today? Do you need more hope in some of the circumstances that you find yourself? Do you need more hope for some of the people that you pray for? For some of the places that you go, for some of the things that you're longing for, the Bible says that it's the source of much of our hope. I mean, of course, Jesus is our hope, but he speaks to us through his word. And then it says in 2 Timothy 3 that it's like a handbook for life. It's a handbook for life. It says about itself, all scripture is breathed by God, useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. And it connects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. As followers of Jesus, a position of a follower of a disciple is learning, isn't it? Which means that we need to be being taught, that we're expecting to learn and grow and be taught all kinds of things as we go with him. And to Timothy, you know, Timothy says, or Paul writing to Timothy says, the Bible is what will teach us to do what is right. Last thing, last passage about what the Bible says about itself from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. This is the message version, and this is God speaking. Don't let the wise brag of their wisdom. Don't let the heroes brag of their exploits. Don't let the rich brag of their riches. If you brag, then brag about this and this only, that you understand and that you know me. I'm God and I act in loyal love. That's God's heart right there. That we would understand him and that we would know him. And that word for understand that is, is used in the, in the text there is about considering. It's about paying due attention to. It's about, it's connected to the word in Hebrew, prosperity and success. There's a link about understanding God and prospering and having success in life, not materially, but spiritually and holistically. And that word there for know is the word that is used in the Bible between a man and his wife. It's not a knowing about, it's not a knowing about information about God, it's not knowing facts about God, it's the word that describes knowing through experience. God's heart is for us to understand him, and to know him through experience, to know him through encounter. And he wants his people to be able to boast that we know him and that we understand him. Amazing. So there, 
is some of the things that the Bible has to say about itself. Obviously, there's a lot more. It teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about where we came from. It teaches us about how to do life, why we're here, where we're going, how we take that kind of thing. And it teaches us the bigger picture about God's purpose for mankind, our history uh, in him, the whole sweep of his purpose for restoration and uh, the future. There's a lot of prophetic stuff in there. And it shows us what God is up to in his world if we're looking for it, as well as what he has been doing. And crucially, it teaches us the truth about how we connect him. It's not a magic book, but in one sense, it is. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the deeper magic, doesn't he, in Narnia. There's something incredibly special and powerful, life-changing about this book. And it teaches us how to live life with God in the best way possible. And of course, as our creator, he's the only one that can give us that kind of advice. David says this in Psalm 119, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. I don't know what you make about that. Again, it's a statement I find really challenging. Can I say that? That God's word is more precious to me than thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. You know, here is a man who recognized the power, the value, and his need of the word of God. The Bible's a history book where we learn about our spiritual roots. The Bible's a story book where we see stories of God's people down the ages in which we can actually find our own stories. The Bible's a book of poetry where we can actually find expression of our own hearts. The Bible's a book of promises where we can discover all about the future that God has for us and longs for us and wants for us. And it's a love letter from God to the world. It's an extraordinary book. I wonder if any of these descriptions of the Bible are ones that you would use about it. Whether you would echo the sentiments of uh, any of these things that I've been reading out. As you know, and as we've you know, we're in our series of healthy habits. And this morning, we just want to think a little bit about the hab- our healthy habits or how healthy are our habits, as, were, as it were, with reading the Bible. What is our relationship with the Bible like and how healthy are our habits around uh, reading the Bible? Last week, Tim was talking about dwelling with God. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get the podcast. But we were un- he was unpacking the invitation of God to us to dwell with him to linger with him, to hang out with him, to do life with him. And uh, what it means for us to push into that invitation to dwell with God. John 15 is a kind of, he was unpacking Psalm 84. John 15 is kind of, in one sense, I think the sort of New Testament equivalent to Psalm 84 that he was unpacking last week. And it uses the word remain over and over again, which is translated in other parts of the New Testament as the word dwell. And I'm just going to read verses 5 to 10. It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, so that we can hear and remind ourselves of what Jesus says about dwelling with him and the place of his word in that dwelling. And Henry VIII would be so pleased that I'm going to read out five whole verses of the Bible. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain, you know, and we can translate that as dwell, in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples or my followers. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. There it is again. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus is talking about dwelling. Dwelling with God and dwelling in God. And what he's saying here is that there's a key connection between dwelling and his word. It's impossible for us. What Jesus is really saying here is it's impossible for us to dwell with God, to dwell in his heart without his word dwelling in us. It's impossible to live in the heart of God and in the fullness of his blessings that he has for us without engaging with the Bible, without taking our relationship with the Bible seriously. What Jesus is saying is, how is my life going to get into you? How am I going to feed you? How am I going to strengthen you? How am I going to encourage you? How am I going to lead you into all that I have for you? How am I going to comfort you? How am I going to ignite faith in you if you're not opening up and getting into my word? He's telling us how to remain in his love. And let's just be clear here. He's not saying, if you don't engage with your Bible, I'm not going to love you. That's not what he's saying here. This isn't an expression of conditional love, that if you read your Bible, I'll love you. But if you don't read the Bible and engage with the Bible, I won't love you. He's not saying that. It's a bit like me if I said, well, I have on many occasions in the past said to my kids, particularly when they were younger, I love you and I'm going to be cooking you supper every night, but supper is going to be served up in the kitchen. So if you want to eat, you have to be in the kitchen. There'll always be food in the kitchen, but you have to come to the kitchen to eat it. And occasionally, on you know, a few occasions for various reasons that I won't go into, the food went uneaten. And it wasn't because it wasn't provided and it wasn't put on the table. It's because the kids never made it down to the kitchen where the food was. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm always going to love you. You know, we know that. He's proved his love for us. He proved his love for us before we ever knew about him, we'd ever heard about him, before we were even born. He can't not love us because he is love. But what he's saying is, if you want to remain in my love, if you want to experience my love, if you want to walk in my love, if you want to grow in my love and an understanding of my love, you have to remain in my word. Because Jesus is the living word. He loves his word. He based his life on the word of God. He filled his spiritual stomach with the word of God. You know, if we want to know what Jesus thinks about the Bible, we just need to, to you know, look at how he lived. And he remained in the Father's love and it was connected to his, his reverence and his attitude and his response to scripture. I had, um, we have a friend who a number of years ago, their child decided to sort of come, uh, bring an end to relationship with my friend. The child, for whatever reasons, didn't want anything more to do with the family. My friend never stopped loving this child. You know, how can you as a parent? She still reached out to the child. She still loved for the child. She still prayed, the, prayed for the child. You know, she still sent various gifts to the child. But the child didn't want relationship with the parent, with my friend. And so over that period of time, you know, the child cut themselves off from, you know, my friend's love, from my friend's family, from all of the gifts and the generosity and the blessings and the family experiences and the holidays and the advice and the wisdom and the comfort and the counsel that my friend longed to offer. 
My friend never stopped loving her child, but the child didn't remain, you know, connected to uh, my friend and therefore able to experience and benefit from her love. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If my word remains in you, you will remain in my love. The invitation to follow Jesus. You know, it's not an invitation to click on some button, is it? And then kind of watch his tweets from afar and look at the photos that he sort of puts up on from his life and the posts that on Instagram and, you know, the things he posts on Facebook and then occasionally to retweet them or repost them for other people to hear. It's an invitation to friendship. It's an invitation to know him as a best friend, to walk with him as a protector, to know him as a loving mentor, to know him as a doctor and as a judge and as a, as a guide and as a comforter. But we need to hear him speak. Tim was saying last week that communication is the currency of relationship. You know, we cannot have a vibrant, living, life-changing relationship with him without communication. And communication is two-way, isn't it? It's us talking to him, which we call prayer, and it's him talking to us. And the main way he speaks to us, let's remind ourselves of this this morning. The main way he speaks to us, the main way we hear his voice is through the Bible. God wants our souls to prosper. He wants us to prosper. But we need to have our heads in the word and our hearts in the word for that to be fully realized in our, in our lives. So let's be really practical for a few moments and talk um, about reading the Bible. First thing to say about this, it's really easy. You're looking a bit worried. Does anybody believe that? I'm joking. It's not. I find it really hard. You know, let's dispel a few lies and a few myths about Bible reading. I think reading the Bible is really hard. Not necessarily because it's always difficult to understand. It depends where you start. But I personally find it really hard to force myself to pick up the Bible and read it. Not all the time, but often. I'm just wanting to be honest with you here. And I think that's true about any spiritual practice. You know, we are flesh and we are spirit. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't know about you, but I want to pray more than I do pray. I want to read my Bible more than I want to read my Bible. You know, I want to do all kinds of things more than I do them. And I don't always find reading the Bible very easy. And I'm, I know that will be true for many of you. Does that mean there's something wrong with us? Does that mean that somehow we need to wait for God to come and bring some firework into our hearts and lives in order for us to read the Bible with the enthusiasm and the hunger that obviously everyone else does? No, that's a lie. It's not easy to pick up a Bible and read it and get something from it. You know, sometimes it's, it's easier. We go through different seasons. I actually love the Bible. I'm passionate about it. So much of what God has poured into my life has been through, you know, his voice, him speaking to me through his word. But I'll be honest with you, and I've been in a season for a number of months now where I find reading the Bible really hard. It is, it is a choice to pick it up. It is a choice to open the pages. I don't make that choice every day because sometimes I let my feelings get the better of me. But I'm in a dry season, as it were. And I have to work harder, actually, to get my head in the Bible. Let's acknowledge that. Here's another lie. Only people with certain personalities who love reading can ever be passionate or have a great experience with the Bible. You know, that's a lie too. That's a lie too. It's a spiritual activity. And we have an enemy who wants to interfere with every, every spiritual activity that we engage with and make it harder rather than easier. That's the reality of it. 
But the more we press on and the more we press through, the more it becomes um, a habit, which is what this series is about. And actually, habits are really helpful because they, they provide a rhythm and a routine and a way of doing things that become um, less intentional because they're more natural the more we repeat them, if that makes sense, which is why cultivating habits is so important. Where are you in your reading of the Bible? Do you love it? Are you in a season of just you can't wait to open the pages because it's just, you know, God is speaking to you and filling your heart with life from it? Or are you finding it a struggle? Really important to be real about that. I had uh, one of our sons a number of years ago, you know, we would encourage him as parents, you know, darling, you need to be reading your Bible. Darling, have you read your Bible today? And he was honest enough to acknowledge, mom, I find it really hard. I don't get very much out of it. You know, I'm really struggling with it. And we would encourage him to keep going. But at the same time, we would say to him, well, talk to God about your struggles. Tell him that you don't really want to read it. And so every day for a year and a half, probably, he would pray. He would do a little bit every now and again. But he would at least pray, God, give me a hunger for your word. Really important to be honest about our struggles with God. And he would pray over and over and over again, God, give me a hunger for your word. Well, the other day he was on the phone telling us that he's reading the Bible through a year. He cannot wait to open his Bible. God has done something absolutely phenomenal in his life. But I noted as he said that, that actually he'd been praying for a number of months, you know, over a year, God, give me a new hunger for the Bible. So let's be, um, let's be honest about where we're at with God, about, you know, where we're at with the Bible. But I think there's a truth here that it's probably worth acknowledging. The less we read it, the less we want to read it. The more we read it, the more we want to read it. It's one of those, you know, spiritual things. The more we eat food, the less hungry we are. But actually with the Bible, I believe the more we read it, the more we want to read it. The less we read it, the less we want to read it. Here's another myth. I don't have time. Ever said that? I don't have time to read the Bible. Do you know what? Let's just remind ourselves again. Tim said it last week. If we don't have time, we're deceiving ourselves. We're basically saying, God, you got it wrong. You don't know about my life. Everything you've asked me to do, it doesn't all fit into my day. If we haven't got time, we're doing a whole pile of stuff that God doesn't really want us to do. And if we're doing a whole pile of stuff that God doesn't want us to do, and we're not having time for the things that he does want us to do, do you know what the sacrifice in that is? It's the blessings that he has for us. You know, he's designed life for us to live in a way that enables us to flourish. That's his heart for us, to flourish. So if we don't have time to read our Bibles on a regular basis, something in our lives needs to shift. And if we're willing enough and brave enough to say to God, okay, what needs to change? What needs to go or what needs to be shifted or shunted around? He will show us. Because he has put so much treasure and power and life In this book for us, he wants us to access it and feed on it. Maybe that's something you need to do this week. To ask God, what needs to be moved around in my life? Which bits of furniture need to move so that I've got a bit more time to spend in my Bible? And here's another myth. Let's just remember that there's no one right way to read our Bibles. Do you know, I used to think years ago, well, this would all be much easier... Or I wouldn't struggle so much if I just did it the right way. What is the right way to read the Bible? And I would ask different people and I would read different books. There isn't a right way to read it. 
We're all different. We all have unique personalities. We will all engage with it and get the most out of it in different ways. There isn't, I don't believe, a right way to read the Bible. You can read one verse for three months and God will feed and nourish your soul and change your life. You can read three chapters every day. It doesn't make any difference. What matters is, are we engaging with it or not? Not how are we reading it and how much are we reading it? You can read it for three hours, you can read it for five minutes. But what matters is, are we reading it? However, having said that, there are a few practical things that we can do to help ourselves on this little journey, and I'm just going to share um, a couple of them um, before we finish. I think it's really important that we come to the Bible with expectation. We are a people of faith. You know, the Bible says that it's impossible without faith to please God. And that he, without faith, you know, he won't reward those who earnestly seek him. Faith matters. So if we come to the Bible and we don't expect God to speak to us, guess what? He's really unlikely to speak to us. We need to bring expectation. Do you expect to meet him in the pages of your word? Or is it, has it become a bit of a ritual that, you know, you just want to get through it so you can get on with your day? You know, maybe for some of us, we need to stir up expectation again that God is going to meet us in the word. Secondly, if you could do with some help in reading your Bible because you've got stuck or you don't know where to start or whatever else it is, ask for help. You know, that's the point of doing life together in community. Ask for help. Find somebody who can help you. You know, most of us here are in life groups. Talk to somebody in your life group. Get some notes. There's some fantastic devotionals. There's all kinds of notes on the internet. There are books everywhere for people to, you know, to help us with our Bible reading. You know, I've been through seasons of my life where notes and devotionals have been so helpful because I don't have to think in the morning, what passage am I going to read? It's there. There's all kinds of apps on our phones. Bible in one year. I don't know if any of you do the Bible in one year. Well, I know some of us do. Um, a brilliant app from HTB that you can download that has a Bible reading plan on it. Just find something that will help you if you're in that place of thinking, do you know what? I need a kickstart in my Bible reading this year. You know, find, ask other people, what notes have you found helpful? What do you use? There's so much great stuff out there. But I do want to just sort of flag up something when we're using other people's notes. We need to be engaging with the word ourselves, not just reading what somebody else has got from their own engagement of the word. We need to be really careful that we are not just ingesting somebody else's experience or revelation about God. God wants to speak to us. So if we are using notes... We need, and I think notes are great, we need to go beyond that and make sure we have connected with God ourselves. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures, but you don't come to me to have life. And the goal of reading the Bible is to come to God to have and experience his life, his heart, his love, his power. So the Bible needs to take us into that life, that love, that power, that revelation, whatever it is. And so if we're using notes, we need to make sure we have connected with God through what we're reading ourselves. Here are a few little things that I found helpful over the years to help me personally do that. Very simple little sort of phrase. Read it, write it, pray it, say it. Maybe you want to say that to the person next to you. Read it, write it, pray it, say it. <laughs> Read it. 
So read, read the Bible, read the verses, read the passage, or even read the notes until, about the passage until something stands out to you. And it might be a word, it might be a phrase, it might be a verse. Read it until something nudges you or grabs your attention. Can we have the read it up there? We'll just track with... There we go. So read it. Very simple. And I, at the moment, in this phase of being a little bit dry in my Bible reading, I can't manage many verses at the moment. So I might pick up a psalm and read two verses, and verse two has got me. That's where I stop. You know, there's been other seasons in my life where I've read lots of the Bible, you know, because I found it exciting or interesting or whatever. Know where you are, know what you need, just read it. And when you've, when you've read a verse that, that hits you, you know, stop. Write it. Now, I know it's not possible to write something down if you're driving your car and you're listening to an audio version of the Bible. I'm not recommending that, okay? And I know if you're reading your Bible while you're breastfeeding or you're, you know, doing cooking in the kitchen, which I used to do as a mother, you know, you don't have loads of time, so I would have my Bible on the side sometimes, you can't write something down. So this is the one, this is the bit that is the sort of negotiable. If you can, I think it's important to read the Bible with a pen. Because there's something that happens when we write stuff down. You know, God says in Habakkuk, write the revelation down. So I personally find it really helpful to write the phrase, the word, or the verse down that has caught my attention. And as I'm writing, and this is the key bit of this write it phase, ask God two questions. Ask God about the passage or the verse or the phrase, you know, the thing that's caught your attention. Ask him some questions. This is the bit where we come to him to have life. Ask him some questions. What are you saying to me, God? What is, what do you say, why is this passage, what, you know, why is it speaking to me? Is there a promise here that you want to remind me of? Is there an action that you want to empower me to fulfill? Is there a sin here that I need to confess? Is there something that I need to believe that I don't believe? Is there something that I need to do that I'm not doing? Is there something that I need to remember? Ask God about the passage. What is it that you're wanting me to do or you're wanting me to see or you're wanting me to remember or you're wanting me to stop doing? Because we're meant to engage with it and allow it to touch our hearts, not just inform our minds. That that would be my first question. What, What are you trying to say to me through this about me? The other question I would ask God is, what does this tell me about you? What does this tell me about who you are? What does this tell me about your heart? What does this tell me about what you love? What does this tell me about the way you work? Because when we ask God questions, we open up our minds and our hearts to hear his response, to receive the revelation of the Holy Spirit through what we are reading. And that bit is the key bit, I really believe, for allowing the Bible to penetrate, you know, beyond our minds into our hearts. Ask God a couple of questions. That's the write it bit. Pray it. That's really obvious, isn't it? Pray about it. This is the conversation. Lord, what are you saying to me? I've been sitting in, in uh, one verse in Philippians at the moment because I know my mind needs renewing. You know, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is admirable, whatever is trustworthy, whatever is praiseworthy, think about such things. I've been sitting on that verse, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And I'm praying it back to God. You know, why do I find this so hard, you know, to rein my mind in, to only focus on these things? Where are the areas in my life where you want to change my thinking? Pray about it. Talk to God about the thing that he's been saying to you. Why, you know, what is it that you're wanting me to do? And then say it. Say the Bible verse, the phrase, the passage, well, not the passage, the verse, the phrase, 
out loud as you go on through your day. That's why it's the last thing. The Bible talks about meditating on Scripture. It talks about meditating on Scripture. I'm, I'm funny. I like weird things like this, but I like looking up um, Hebrew words. And the Hebrew word for this word meditate is an onomatopoeia. So it's a word whose sound describes something. And the word means to chew to chew over and to think about over and over again. And we in the West think of meditation as a kind of silent thing where, you know, we empty our minds or whatever and we just, you know, think and concentrate really hard and uh, try and get rid of all distractions. The Hebrew word to meditate is the noise. It's the same word as the noise that a lion or a lioness makes as she or he growls while eating its prey. So it's a noise that the lion makes as it is eating its food. So it's an external noise, you know, no doubt there's some pleasure in it, that is made while it's, it's, it's chewing its prey. And that's what God is saying here, that we're to make a noise as we meditate. Well, that's speaking it out, because there's a power when we speak things out. There's a power that is released when we make confession. We seem to have reduced the biblical word confession to just, you know, acknowledging sin. The primary way the word confession is used in the Bible is to declare God's truth. So we're to say it over and over again during our day. And the more you repeat God's word to yourself out loud during the day, the more it gets into our spirits. This is what God says to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. David said, I've hidden your word in my heart. God says to Joshua, keep it on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And I know we can have issues with those words, but the same word there for successful is the word that was used in Jeremiah for understanding God. God has so much that he wants to pour into us, but so much of it is poured into us through his word as we pour his word into us. He'll do the work in us, but we have to do the word, the work of opening it up. I want to finish by saying something that I felt the Lord say to me this morning. I didn't know, Tim and I haven't talked this morning. I left the house, um, you know, I was downstairs and left the house. And, and he shared during the worship this sense that God wants to wake some of us up and alert us to some things that maybe we've become a bit sleepy over. As I was praying this morning, I felt the Lord saying that we need the Bible to keep us awake. He used that very same word. We need the Bible to keep us awake. We don't live in a culture where we have persecution, really. Not for being a Christian. We might get a little bit persecuted if we speak up about what we believe. But we don't live in a culture where there is persecution. Our biggest challenge is seduction. The biggest challenge for the church in the West is seduction. We are being seduced constantly by the world and its values. Social media is teaching us how to parent our children. Social media is educating us about gender stuff, about relationship stuff. 
Social media and the media in general and our culture in general are shaping our views about our world, about relationships, about ourselves, about each other. Jesus says that you can't love me and love the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to love the people in the world, but not the world's ways. And I felt God saying this morning that we need the Bible to keep us awake because the effect of seduction is to become sleepy and to become drowsy and to be in danger of falling asleep. The Bible is God's word and it will keep us awake to him, awake to the true spiritual realities in our world, awake to the true spiritual realities about us and about the people around us and about their real needs. It's living and it's active. It's the thing that is going to keep us the right way up in a world that is continually trying to turn us back upside down. The Bible is what we need to keep us awake. And it may be uncomfortable at times to take it seriously. It may be uncomfortable at times to wrestle with it. But do you know what? If we're going to sleep, we don't need a pillow. We need a prod. And God, I believe, is saying to us, church, this morning, that that we need to be aware of the danger of falling asleep. And the Bible is one of those things that will help us to remain awake. So why don't we stand?